Testament scripture reading for tonight comes from 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 19 through 21, and Micah chapter 7, verses 4 through 9. So Elijah departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. The day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Let us pray. Lord of all power and might, the author and giver of all good things, graft in our hearts the love of your name. Increase in us true religion. Nourish us with all goodness and bring forth in us the fruit of good works. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. I encourage you to look in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, and there you will find our sermon text for this evening. It's also printed in the worship order if you would like to locate it there. Continuing our journey through the Gospel of Luke, and we come to a familiar passage of Scripture that deals with cross-bearing. It was just a few short weeks ago that we touched on this, but now Jesus wants to revisit the theme of cross-bearing and drive home his point a little deeper. And so with God's help and God's grace, we will listen to the words of Jesus Christ and take them to heart this evening. The sermon text comes from Luke 14, verses 25 to 33. If you are willing and able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's most holy word. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple." Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, 
This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And that is the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And all the church says, you may be seated. Well, as you can tell from the scripture reading, we're going to deal with a little bit of hate speech this evening. And it's not the kind of hate speech, I hope, that will get any of us thrown into jail or brought up on charges, but it's hate speech nonetheless. And we need to deal with what Jesus says here. When I started working through this text for this sermon, I thought, wow, I can't believe Jesus told us to hate our families. And I'm sure the people who are listening are thinking the same thing. I can't believe we're told to hate our families. This has to go down as one of the more difficult teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. It certainly has to be ranked among the hardest that any of our postmodern ears can hear. So in preparation for this, I did a little research. I did what everyone does when you do research. I googled hate speech and things related to hate and hating families and parents. And these are some things I came up with. I discovered that people who hate their parents is actually a trending issue in our culture. It is becoming a common thing for younger people to hate their parents. In fact, it's becoming far too common. Just last year, Psychology Today ran an article, a piece called 10 Reasons Why Your Grown Children Hate You. 10 Reasons Why Your Grown Kids Hate You. It was an eye-opening article in many ways, and I must tell you that as a parent of young adult children, there's a part of me that thought maybe I need to take some of this advice to heart. I came across other articles and videos about people who say they hate their family, but they love their friends. There were even some people who said they hate their family and friends, but they love strangers. And then there were people who said that they hate themselves and everyone else. And so after that brief excursion into cyberspace, it struck me that apparently there are people all around us who are, at least in part, trying to do what they think Jesus said. After all, Jesus gives the impression here, doesn't he, that we should hate our families and hate ourselves. And on the surface, that's certainly what it sounds like. But is that really and truly what Jesus meant? Did he use the word hate the way we use the word hate or the way psychology today use the word hate? Well, by no means did he mean the same things. One of the things to keep in mind is Jesus was teaching and preaching in a time where people had to make hard decisions about whether to follow him or stay with their families. To follow Jesus as a disciple or continue in their Jewish faith and their Jewish religion. To follow Jesus or to continue offering sacrifices at the temple. And this decision would often strike at the very heart of the family unit. 
And so there were people who had to make real life decisions. Do I follow Jesus? Do I love him more than I love mother and father? Do I love Jesus more than I love my wife and children? They had those kinds of hard decisions to make. I want to argue that Jesus was not literally calling anyone to hate their mother and father, wife or children. He's using hyperbole. He's exaggerating his language to make a point. And one way I can make the case for you is to show you that in Luke's gospel, we've already seen Jesus acting out in love toward his mother and father. We see Jesus honoring them and being submissive to them all the way back in Luke 4. Jesus held the nuclear family in high esteem. Jesus also held his spiritual family in high esteem. In fact, on one occasion when his mother and brothers went to find him, Jesus said, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. And so in light of this, we can say that Jesus practiced what he preached. He, in scare quotes, he hated his mother and brothers in the flesh, but he loved his mother and brothers in the spirit. Jesus also warned us just a couple of chapters earlier. If you're reading through Luke's gospel with us, then you certainly came across this warning where Jesus warned us that because of the gospel, In other words, because of his doctrine, because of his outlook on life, because of what he was calling people to do at the cross, there would be in one house divisions. Houses would be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Now, if any of you think, well, this is just a one off, this is a weird thing that happened in the time of Jesus, just go back to the Old Testament and you will see that Jesus is simply echoing the law and the prophets. In Deuteronomy 13, for example, the families were called upon to choose between truth and family. And if anyone in their family was preaching heresy or anything that contradicted God's word, they were to separate themselves from that person who was doing those things. And in some cases, that person was even uh, to be put to death by the community. And then we heard about the tension between families in our Old Testament reading from Micah 7. So my point is, Jesus is dealing with the realities that when the gospel, when the word of God and the law of God come into a person's life, that often shakes up the family. It shakes up a person's life and their relationships. The point in this context is that the cross of Jesus Christ deeply affects our family dynamics and even our personal identity. If any of you are familiar with John Bunyan's classic novel, Pilgrim's Progress, then you'll know the story about a man named Christian who does the very thing that Jesus suggests here. And he does it in a very graphic, perhaps extreme way. But against all common sense, he leaves his wife and kids. He leaves his friends, his community. He leaves everything behind in order to follow the way of the cross. And then he casts his burdens down, his sin burden down at the foot of the cross and then takes up the cross to follow Jesus. When you read the novel, you're struck by just how crazy this man seems and how crazy this story looks. But in light of the gospel of Jesus, it turns out to be the wisest, most sane thing that anyone can do. 
And that brings us back to our sermon text where Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, a quick lesson on how to read the scriptures. This is actually written in a parallelism. Jesus says this very extreme thing, very graphic thing, shocks everyone in this large crowd, just like it shocks all of us. And then he comes back to explain exactly what he means. What does it mean to hate your father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, even your own life? Jesus summarizes it by saying, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And so let Jesus define for you what he means. Let him define his own terms, and that will make things much easier. We don't have to play the guessing game and say, well, I think he meant this or felt that. If you take it the wrong way, it sounds like Jesus is calling people to disobey God's law. If you take Jesus's radical extreme statement the wrong way it sounds like he's calling people to disobey or disregard God's law God's law requires us to honor our father and mother to leave our father and mother and cleave to our wife to love and bring up our children in the Lord and to love our siblings as ourselves If you need proof text for all of those statements, I'll gladly give them to you. But I lifted them right out of the Old Testament. So is Jesus really and truly calling us to obey God's most holy law by hating our parents, our spouse, our children, our family, or by hating ourselves? No. In fact, we could argue that Jesus does not require anything more, less, or different than what the law of God requires of us. The point Jesus is trying to make to this large crowd of people that has formed around him is that everyone who comes to him as his disciple, if you want to come as his student and come as his servant, then you're going to have to love and serve him above all others including the nearest and dearest human family relations you have, including yourself. Why? Because the first and the greatest commandment of all is that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And Jesus Christ is the Lord our God in the flesh. Now, keep in mind that Jesus is preaching to a megachurch that has formed around him. And unlike many celebrity pastors in our time who think bigger is always better. Bigger can be good, by the way, but they think bigger is always better. Notice Jesus is not concerned with big, fat crowds. He is more interested in faithful cross-bearing. And that's why he turns to the masses and he lays down the terms and the conditions of following him. He uses this very graphic, extreme language. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after Jesus cannot be his disciple. The word cannot here means that they are not able. They are unable to be his disciple. 
They're not able to be his disciple because there's something within themselves that prevents them from being a disciple. They're also not able to be his disciple because there's something in him that prevents them from being his disciple. In other words, Jesus doesn't say, come as you are, stay as you are, and everything will be fine. He says, if you're going to come follow me, something's going to have to change. People may line the roads to Jerusalem. They may go to church and gather at rallies and attend conferences and read fat books and cheer for Jesus all the way up to Jerusalem. But they are not able to be his disciples if they do not hate what he hates and love what he loves. Now, last week, remember, we heard Jesus say, repent or perish. And that's tied into what we hear Jesus say today when he says, hate your own life, hate your own life. It's like asking us, are you willing to do everything that Jesus calls you to do? Are you willing to take up your cross and follow him? Are you willing to love Jesus more than you love your own life? Will you repent of that secret sin that you keep as a pet? Will you give up your desires and ambitions? Will you lay down your life for Christ and for the church? Are you willing to love Jesus more than you love your own life, your own family, including your kids? Just a few days ago, I met a young Hispanic woman who told me that ever since she submitted her life to Christ a few years ago, it has put a real strain on her relationship with her parents and with her siblings. And this is what she said. I didn't know that becoming a Christian was going to cause me so much trouble. Maybe some of you feel the same way she does. I know that some of you feel like she does to a certain degree. You've had to go against your families on certain matters of doctrine and practice. And that was very uncomfortable for you and for them. Others of you feel pressure to do anything and everything for your kids. It's amazing how historically God's people have used the kids as an excuse for a variety of things, giving them pride of place even over Christ. Do you love Jesus more than you love your kids? Are you willing to love Jesus even more than you love your friends? You know what this is like. Sometimes you've got to make hard decisions and choose between your friends and Jesus or choose between what your friends want you to do and what Jesus wants you to do. And you feel that pull. You feel the pressure to disobey Jesus, to disregard his word. Are you willing to love Jesus more than you love your friends? And what about your life? Are you willing to love Jesus more than you love your life? When we talk about your life, we we can include a range of things here. We could talk about more than your career, more than your job, more than your entertainments, more than your hobbies. There are moments in all of our lives when we have to choose between obeying God or man. What will we choose to do? Are we willing to love Jesus more than we love the world and the culture around us? The world preaches this false gospel of self-love and it says, follow your heart, obey your thirst. If it feels good, do it. If it makes you happy, it can't be wrong. But Jesus makes it clear. If we will not follow the way of the cross, Jesus will not let us follow him 
as his disciples. He will not let us be his students and his servants. Now, these words are sharp and hard, especially compared to the slick marketing lingo that we often hear in our Bible Belt culture here in the South. We hear people say all kinds of things about what Jesus has called us to do. Remember a few weeks ago, we heard Bonhoeffer say, when Jesus crawl, when, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. I get all kinds of flyers in the mail these days from various churches, and none of them call me to die. None of them call me to sacrifice anything. They tell me, in fact, that when Christ calls a man, he bid him come and jump on a jump house or eat a lot of pizza or do a lot of other silly things that have nothing to do with the cross. And listen, I like a jump house as much as the next kid. And I like pizza as well. But the point is, churches nowadays seem to have lost the, the cutting edge that Jesus had. No longer calling people to take up a cross and follow Jesus. The propaganda is, look, Jesus wants you to be happy no matter what. And that doesn't sound like the message Jesus was preaching to this large crowd that was following him around. Jesus didn't come to us as our personal therapist to help us fulfill all of our personal life goals. He didn't come as our life coach to help us discover and connect and experience our best life now. He didn't even call us to join him on a spiritual journey out into the wilderness to find ourselves. Jesus called us to the cross where we may be crucified to the world and the world be crucified to us. Now I want to remind you that you are baptized Christians. You are baptized Christians. Your baptism is the sign and seal of this double crucifixion. You were, ba- you were baptized and crucified to the world, and the world was crucified to you. You were united with Christ in His crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. You are cross-bearers. And so take up your cross and follow Jesus. Now I've picked on some of our brothers and sisters in Christ and other churches and things, and I don't want to be too hard on them. I'm not saying that they don't love Jesus at all. They do love Jesus. But the struggle they have is the struggle that I have and that many of you have, and that is that they don't hate other things nearly enough. And that's Jesus' point, isn't it? We love some things, like power and glory, but... We're not willing or able to serve or struggle against power and glory. We're not willing to sacrifice or even shrink under the scandal of the cross. But this is nothing new. In the late 1400s of the medieval age, Thomas Akempis wrote these insightful words in his little book of the imitation of Christ. He said... Jesus has many who love his heavenly kingdom, but few who bear his cross. He has many who desire consolation, but few who care for trial. He finds many to share his table, but few to take part in his fasting. All desire to be happy with him. Few wish to suffer anything for him. Many follow him to the breaking of the bread, but few to the drinking of the chalice of his passion. 
Many revere his miracles. Few follow the shame of the cross. Many love Jesus as long as they encounter no hardship. Many praise and bless him as long as they receive some comfort from him. But if Jesus hides himself and leaves them for a little while, they fall either into complaints or into deep dejection. Those, on the contrary, who love him for his own sake and not for any comfort of their own, bless him no less in all trial and anguish of heart than in the bliss of consolation. Even if he should never give them consolation, yet they would continue to praise him and wish always to give him thanks. What power there is in pure love for Jesus, love that is free from all self-interest and self-love. Thomas Akempis in the 1400s, no less. And so it seems the more things change, the more they remain the same. So how can we take up our cross and follow Jesus? What does he expect us to do? Well, one of the practical ways to take up your cross and follow him is to renounce everything you have. And the word renounce means to forsake, abandon, turn your back on it. And I know you're dying to know where you should sign up for that mission. But that's how Jesus concluded that part of his teaching, isn't it? That's the point that he makes when he gives us the two hypothetical situations regarding the building of a tower and fighting battles. Jesus calls us to give up our ambitions, our dreams, our ego, all of our plans and schemes and resources must be forsaken for his sake. So he mentions the building of the tower and the going out to war. And in that, we learn that he's calling us to count the cost. If you've been around Christian community very long at all, then you've probably heard someone talk about count the cost and maybe in a way that wasn't very healthy. I want to suggest to you there is a better way to think of this. Jesus did not mean that we should count the cost of, say, building a church with him and then see if we can afford to finish it. And if we can't, then don't even start. Or that we should count the cost of going to war with the devil and see if we can overcome him or if we should just surrender and give in to him. That's not his point. Jesus did not mean that we should count the cost of following him and see if we have enough possessions and enough personnel to see it through. And if we do have what it takes, if we have enough possessions, if we have enough people, then we should do it. That's not Jesus's point. Here's the moral of the stories that Jesus told about building towers and fighting battles. His conclusion is, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So what is the point of counting the cost then? The reason Jesus calls us to count the cost is so that we can see that our personal resources are not enough. So that we can see that our personnel is not enough. We're never going to have enough money. We're never going to have enough people. We're never going to have enough of what it takes to do all that we think needs to be done or to finish it out on our own steam. That's why we count the cost. We count the cost so that we can see our 
deficit and our need of Jesus Christ. So we can see with our own eyes and feel with our own hearts that we don't have what it takes to finish our projects or fight our battles. We count the cost so that we can see that we are finite, that we lack resources, that we are limited, that we are destitute and doomed without Jesus. Without Jesus, we cannot finish the life, the family, the career, the ministry, the church that we started. We can't do it. We can't finish the fight ahead without Jesus. We can't go higher up without his cross. We can't move farther ahead without his cross. And so what does he tell us to do in the face of this great need, in the face of our limitations, our poverty, our lack of resources? What does he tell us to do? He says, renounce everything you have. Well, Jesus, I don't have enough. Renounce everything you have. Even what you don't have. Forsake it all. Abandon it. Turn your back on it. Move away from it. And what do I do? Take up my cross. We must renounce, forsake, abandon all our dependence and all our reliance on all of our resources. However many or few they might be. Like the builder and the king in the stories, we don't have enough resources in and of ourselves to do all that we want to do, to do all that we need to do for Christ in this world. And while that may cause some of you despair, maybe it makes you feel a bit of shame, there is no cause for either. As Calvin explains, There is no good reason for being discouraged by a knowledge of our poverty for the Lord grants to us seasonable aid. I readily acknowledge that if we calculate the expense, we are all destitute of power to lay a single stone or to wield a sword against the enemy. But as the materials, expense, arms, and forces are supplied by the Lord out of heaven, no pretext on the score of difficulty can be offered by our indifference or sloth. So therefore, we must renounce all of our resources and we must rest in all of the resources of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament reading before the sermon, we heard the story of how Elijah the prophet went and called Elisha to become his disciple. And what did Elisha do? Elisha totally sacrificed his way of life. He killed his vocation. He burned up his career. He slaughtered the power behind his project. He took the prophets and he shared them with his community. He threw himself a going away party. He kissed his father and mother goodbye and he left to follow the prophet. Elisha did what Jesus had in mind. He renounced everything. He let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. All for the sake of following the way of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, many are called to take up the cross and follow the Lord. But few are courageous enough to do so with such deep and personal conviction as we see not only in Elisha, 
but more importantly, in Jesus Christ Himself. If you wish to be His disciple, if you wish to be His servant, His student, to follow after Him, to learn of Him, for He is gentle and humble in heart. If you wish to take His yoke upon you, then you must know what lies ahead. And what lies ahead are all the joys, all of the glories that come with the cross, but also all of the sorrows and all of the pains that come with sharing in the sufferings of Christ. You are to be commended, for you have walked with Him a long way bearing the cross. And no one is more proud of you than I am. But I want to encourage you to keep on keeping on. Don't let go of the cross. Don't let go of Christ. Fix your eyes on Him and the joys set before you. And you will be able to endure any hardships and any trials that come your way. For you will see that Christ is the one who is blazing the trail for you, cutting the path and making your path straight and your way easier. Let us pray together. Oh, Lord God, do not allow us to leave you or or to return from following you. For where you go, we will go and where you dwell, we will dwell. Your people shall be our people and you shall be our grace and our glory. Where your son died, we died, and where he was buried, we were buried, and where he was raised, we were raised. May the Lord do to us according to the covenant of grace he made with us, to help us in our weakness and to heal our wounds, to conquer us and our sin at the cross, and to make us conquerors through Christ who loved us in such a way that nothing shall ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. For his yoke is easy, his burden is light, and his promises are rest for our souls. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.